I first met my wife, Joetta, back in 1972. And on one of our first dates, I took her to McDonald's. I was just a poor college student. And when we got there, I asked her, I said, Joe, do you want some fries? And she said, no, I don't want any fries, just a Big Mac. You know, so I said, okay. And so I ordered her a Big Mac, and she wanted a shake. So we got a shake. I ordered a couple of quarter pounders, a shake, and some fries for me. So we sat down, started to eat. And partway through the meal, Joe reached over and started to take one of my fries. So I quickly grabbed the fries and moved them out of her way. And I said, you said you didn't want any fries, so why are you trying to take some of mine? Now, I know what you're thinking. It's really hard to believe that Joe would do something like that. It's hard for me, even today as I tell the story, to to recognize that or think about it. But what was really happening here? Well, it all boiled down to a clash of expectations that Joe and I had for this romantic date at McDonald's. In Joe's family, going to McDonald's was a huge deal. There were five kids in the family, and her mom and dad used McDonald's as kind of a special affair. And when they went, they would uh, try and help the children learn how to share. And the way they'd do that is they'd buy them one order of fries for five kids, and they would share it. And Joetta grew up doing that, and so sharing fries was really, really a special memory for her. My family had four kids, and going to McDonald's was a huge deal in my family, too. But my parents used McDonald's as a chance to do something that we rarely got to do, and that was to have something all to ourselves. And so they would buy us each something we could have, and guess what it was? French fries. So you can see that Joe and I both had two imaginary pictures of what this McDonald's date was supposed to be, some expectations around it, and this created a big disconnect. And then as a result, we were both disappointed when our expectations weren't met. Now, this is amusing when we talk about French fries, but it's not so funny when we talk about false expectations of another person. And that's what tonight's text is all about. It's all about false expectations for Jesus and the imaginary Messiah that we can create in our heads. False expectations of another person, they limit our imagination. That's because they create an imaginary person in our head. And then what we do is we compare the real person to the imaginary one, and it puts us in judgment over them. It could even lead us to push our own agenda with somebody, to try and push them or force them into being the person we've got in our head. All of us have probably felt this in a relationship with someone else, either as the expector or as the person who felt the pressure of expectations that you really didn't understand. I was born into a home that was loaded with expectations for what a son would be like. I was the first boy, born after my two sisters, Judy and Di. My mom and dad owned a movie theater at the time, and dad was so excited to have a son that he created a full-length motion picture with sound and credits, the whole thing. And it was called, It's a Boy. Clearly, he was very excited. And this was long before he had YouTube or uh, smartphones or digital cameras or any of that kind of thing. Dad had huge expectations for his son. And part of that was because my dad played football for the University of Oklahoma back in the 1930s. He was a center. Now imagine, as he had these two daughters, and then he thought, maybe I'll have a son, and how he fantasized about playing football with his son, about watching him in high school on the football team, maybe maybe even watch him go to his alma mater and play football there. But that's not the son he got. I was a skinny little kid, and I was easily intimidated by big people. I'd much rather talk to people than run into them, and so football was not a good match for me. In fact, I loved music, not football. 
I wanted to go to choir, madrigals, sing the barbershop quartet, you name it. I was nothing like the imaginary son that my dad had in his head. Now, if my dad had held on to that imaginary son, my life would likely have taken a very different and probably a very painful path. But, much to his credit, he quickly saw the disconnect between his imaginary son and the real one that God gave to him. And so glad, my dad gladly gave up this imaginary son that he had, and he embraced the real one. And many, many blessings followed because of that. Now, the Jewish culture of the first century was fertile soil for expectations about the Messiah. And that's still true today. If you think about it, what the Jews have experienced down through their history, all the horrific suffering that they've had at the hands of kings and monsters of every kind, from Nebuchadnezzar in the 5th or 6th century B.C. to Adolf Hitler, and now we have the skinheads and and, uh, racist groups in, in Europe and around the world. It's no wonder that they long for a Messiah to come. So when Jewish parents and children gathered around the fire in first century Palestine, they would tell stories about the Messiah. And those stories shaped what they thought the Messiah would be like and what he would do when he came. It's wonderful that they longed for the Messiah. It's just that they had an imaginary Messiah in their head that was shaped by their suffering and their stories. And so Jesus had to deal with all these expectations from the beginnings of his ministry to the end and on past his resurrection. And these expectations are the subtext of what's going on in tonight's passage. Tonight's story falls in the middle of five stories that run from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. And interestingly, Mark has arranged these stories in a way that looks kind of like a five-act play. So let's imagine that you're going to the theater to watch this play, a play about the life of Jesus. And you grab one of the programs as you walk in. you got a few minutes, so you sit down and you open it up and you want to kind of get an overview, learn a little bit about what this play is about. So sometimes they'll tell you in the program, they'll say, here's stuff that happened before the play so that you can kind of know why the things in the play are happening. And so what did happen before this in chapter 2? Well, we have chapter 1. Jesus is bursts onto the scene and we word about his power has spread. He's attracting a crowd. It's amazing the things that we see him doing. And then there's some characters in the story. Of course, Jesus. And we know from chapter 1 who he is. Mark tells us he's the son of God. But nobody else in the story knows that. And then we've got the crowd. The crowd was common Jewish people. They had come to see Jesus because they were interested in this miracle worker and teacher. And they had some hints that maybe, just maybe he was this Messiah that they had been longing for. And then part of the crowd, another set of characters we have in the story are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're not the cartoon hypocrites that we sometimes make out in our heads today. In fact, they were deeply religious. Uh, They were devoted to God. They were active in their local church or synagogue. They loved Scripture. They tithed regularly. Now, to be sure, some of them were scoundrels, but every church has its scoundrels. Many of them were devout followers of God, and they were longing for the Messiah. And so they were sincere people, and they were there for the same reason that most of the other people were there. They really wanted to find out about this Jesus. Now, I think Mark has told these stories, these five stories, in a way that he wants to invite us into the crowd. He wants us to put ourselves there and imagine what it would be like. And I think that he also is enticing us to try and see how we might identify, in particular with the Pharisees in this story. 
So let's take a quick overview of the five acts, and then we'll spend some time with ours, which is right smack dab in the middle. The first act is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and that's the story where the paralytic is lowered through the roof, and Jesus immediately says, your sins are forgiven. And here's the reaction that comes from the, the Pharisees. They're thinking in their heads, this fellow is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds. He says, why are you thinking such things? Which is easier to do, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turns to the paralytic and he says, I tell you, take up your mat and walk. And that's what the man does. And then in Act 2, the next scene, this is in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus calls Levi, that traitor and that lackey of the Herodian government, and then he goes to a party at Levi's house with a bunch of very, you know, questionable characters. So the reaction we get, the Pharisees, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, he says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners. The third act, that's our passage for tonight. We'll come back to that in just a minute. The fourth act. Here, Jesus and his disciples are walking along on the Sabbath day, and they travel through a grain field, and as they, they pass the grain, the heads of grain are up, and they, they rub their hands over the grain, and they grab it, and they sh- you know, squeeze it and shake off the chaff, and they get some fresh grains of, of uh, 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 kernels of grain, and they throw it in their mouth, and they eat it. So, the Pharisees, they react, and they say, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, he responds this way. He effectively says, hey, David, King David and his men, they ate the sacred bread that was reserved only for priests. I can do that. And besides, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And then finally, the fifth act. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here, Jesus heals a man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath day. But here's how the story opens, that scene opens. The Pharisees are there, and it says some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus' response was this. He saw the man, and he said, stand up in front of everyone. And then he turns to the crowd, and he says, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? And then he heals the man. And the story closes, the very last words of this little play. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is really a Greek tragedy. It's not a happy ending. Now, I want us to recognize that this this play really comes in two pieces. The first piece is the first two acts. And in the first two acts, what we have is not hostility. We have open questions, the kind of questioning that, that anybody would have done if they didn't know who Jesus was and they saw what he was doing. How can you forgive sins? I thought only God could do that. And so uh, we see this happening and we see Jesus earnestly trying to respond to their questions in colorful language, but nonetheless, he is trying to answer their questions and help them understand what he's doing. So we shouldn't be too quick to condemn the Pharisees here for their questions. They're just kind of spokespersons for the crowd. In fact, if I had been there and I knew only what they knew at the time, I would have asked the same questions. I would, or at least I would have been glad somebody else was asking them. I would have wondered about that, watching this man do what he did. But then we see the last two acts. And here we see things take a really negative turn. 
Can you hear it in the tone? The questions no longer sound sincere. They don't sound like someone who wants to understand. They sound accusative, like someone who's out to get Jesus and doesn't really care what the answers are. And then, of course, comes the tragic conclusion, a plot for murder. So, how does this happen? How do you get this big shift from the first two acts, honest inquiry and discourse with Jesus, to the last two acts where it's open hostility, not really listening to him, and a plot to murder? If we stop and think about this, it ought to be a little sobering to us. Why? How? How could people like this, people like us, how could they turn and reject Jesus when just a few scenes earlier they were, they were in open conversation seeking to understand what caused this to happen? So what I'd like to suggest that we do is picture a door. And on this door we have this play painted. On the front of the door are the first two scenes. Scenes of open inquiry and honest questions and confusion and Jesus working to try and bring understanding. Then you flip the door over and on the back side you see the other two scenes. And you see hostility and anger and a plot for murder. How could this flip from here to here? Well, the hinge is really critical. The hinge is our passage for tonight. And I want to suggest to you that the force that drives the Pharisees from this first side of the door to the dark side of the door is a matter of false expectations that they had about their Messiah. So let's pick up on our passage for tonight in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, this sounds like another innocent question, an inquiry, maybe some confusion about some religious practices and fasting. In fact, Mark takes the Pharisees out. They're not the spokespersons this time. It says that some people came and asked this. It's sure to get the impression that the crowd wanted to know, why is it that we see them fasting, but your disciples are not? But there's more going on here. The Jews of that time, and for a long time prior to that, fasted and prayed regularly. And they prayed in their fast. They prayed calling on God to purify his people and to send his Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come and to set all things right. So with that in mind, what the crowd really maybe is asking is this. Why aren't your disciples fasting and praying for the coming of the Messiah? Like the Pharisees and John's disciples are. Can you hear something here? Maybe even a hint of... Are you the Messiah? And Jesus gives them plenty to think about with his answer. Here's what he says, verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Jesus is saying, I'll tell you why my disciples don't fast. They don't need to. The bridegroom is here. Now, this must have gotten everybody's attention. Jesus is claiming that there's no need for fasting because the Messiah is here. And he implies that he's the Messiah. He's the bridegroom with his bridal party. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus is saying something actually much, much more here. Jesus employs an image that was deeply engraved into the Jewish consciousness. It was the image of God as a bridegroom, as Israel's husband. Tonight's reading that Fran read from Hosea, is a vivid example of that. 
Israel had been an adulterous wife. She had run after every lover that came along. And God, her husband, though betrayed, still longs to be united with his beloved. The prophet spoke of a time when God himself would one day come and be united with his bride, and there would be a big party. Though devout Jews believed this and longed for God to return and reclaim his people, they never once in their wildest imagination thought that he would come in the body of a man. That would be blasphemy of the first order. And yet, when Jesus describes himself as a bridegroom, as Israel's bridegroom, he's saying, I'm more than a Messiah. I'm the king of the universe, the creator of the earth, the stars, and everything that you know. This man standing here with a beard in sandals and wearing a cloak, this man is the God that you have worshipped and prayed to for centuries. For anyone who was really listening, Jesus knew that he had just blown things out of the water for them. He had taken their imaginary messiahs and just chucked them as far out as you can imagine. So, he tries to help them here. He tries to give them a way to to find a way to take all of this in and to see him for who he really is. So, let's read on in verses 21 and 22. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Look, Jesus says, you've got an imaginary Messiah in your head, not the real Messiah. Your expectations, they're like old wineskins or old cloth that needs to be repaired. I'm the new wine, I'm the new cloth. If you won't be open to the possibility that I just might be God himself, then you will lose everything. My mission hangs on this. And your participation in my kingdom hangs on this. But that's not all Jesus says. We skipped over a little bit here. Let's go back to verses 19 and 20. And pay special attention to what Jesus says after he refers to himself as a bridegroom. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. So picture yourself in the crowd. Place yourself there. You don't really know who Jesus is, but you've heard John the Baptist's testimony. You've seen or heard of Jesus' amazing actions. And all of this among you and your friends in the crowd has created this tsunami of hope that maybe, just maybe, the Messiah is here. Maybe our long-awaited king has arrived. And then he says these things. What could you possibly be thinking? You're thinking, okay, he says he's the Messiah, but he says he's more than just a king. He says he's the creator of the universe, God. But wait, wait. He says, he says he's going to be taken away? How could anyone take God away? God comes and goes as he pleases. Who could possibly take him away? This doesn't make any sense. Well, after 2,000 years of history, 
we can make sense of this. Jesus is hinting at his death on the cross. He was taken away. God was murdered on the cross in the body of Jesus. But we also know that wonder of all wonders, this had always been God's plan. Not only was Jesus God, but he was the God who came so that he could die. That's how he defeated the powers of darkness and brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. A kingdom that has no end, where Jesus, the God King, will rule with justice, mercy, and wisdom. Where there will be no tears and no suffering. And yet, we still haven't seen the whole story. Even though his kingdom has arrived, we don't see it in all its fullness. My own sin, your sin, gives testimony to that. The games and politics in our workplaces bear witnesses that God's kingdom has not fully arrived. Children who have no parents or whose parents inflict great harm on them. Wars without end, human trafficking, land, air, and seas that are poisoned with abuse. All of this tells us that God's kingdom, planted on earth through the body, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has not yet reached its fullness. And so we pray. And in this season of Lent, we fast, just like Jesus said we would. Longing for the Messiah, the God King, Jesus. Waiting for him to return in all his glory and to spread his kingdom in all its fullness. To restore ourselves, our families, our town, and all of creation to what God had always intended it to be. So that's why we enter this Lenten season in a spirit of repentance and fasting. So, every time you feel a longing for what you've given up in your Lenten fast, be reminded to turn to God in prayer so that you can ask Him to set you free from all the imaginary messiahs that we have created. And then we can repent of our illusions and we can humbly embrace and follow the true one messiah into His glorious kingdom.